Welcome to this episode of Smarter Change, provided by Hassan Archer Consulting. I'm your host, Hassan Archer. Each session, we dive into an interview with senior leaders to understand how they have led meaningful change inside their clients, companies, and organizations. I believe lasting change within companies requires everyone to continuously assess and evaluate how they get things done in a changing world. And today, I'm excited to speak with our guest, Chris Munier. Chris Munier runs a company called Quality LLC, which provides quality management consulting services in the areas of software development, information technology, information security, and software quality assurance for seed, startup, and enterprise-level corporations. From advisors to testers, Quality offers a specific layer for delivering quality software experiences to all the many end users around the globe. First of all, Chris, just introduce yourself and answer the question for us. Who exactly is Chris Mounier? Hi, Hassan. This is great. Thank you. Um, um, so uh, who am I? In a, a professional sense, referencing the work that you and I have done together, um, I continually can't help but have a quality lens to everything I look at. Um, and I can give you examples of both software and, and enterprise implementation, but also just making recipes at home or, you know, going on vacations or, you know, minding the weather reports for whether it's going to be cold or warm or rainy and such. Um, all of that can be uh, defined in, in, a, in a quality assurance or quality control way um, that I just dive into. I look at like, is there, is there a way that you could have done it better at a cost that, will, that won't be too heavy, but also won't be uh, so light that you're not considering something along the way? And so a lot of ways I do that, um, I've coined as small durable shifts. I like just small durable shifts that you can, you can put into the process, into the organization, into the culture. Uh, they're small, so they're highly modular. Uh, they're durable, uh, so that they're, you know, they don't just fall away when, you know, someone else isn't there or such. And they're a shift, and the shift is uh, typically what they call to the left. And to the left is where you have a genesis of something. So the closer you are to a genesis of something, the more influential it can be um, to mitigate, if not eliminate, costs toward the right. Um, so if you, you know, if you go to my website, You'll see quotes from leading quality managers uh, who have caused a movement probably since the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Some of them have, are notorious, uh, you know, not notorious, but uh, uh, they have notoriety because of award systems. Um, if you go to my website, you'll see that I've got um, a link to a GitHub repository that, that explains much of what you and I are going to talk about today, but in a little more um, elongated and, and verbose way. And uh, if you look at my services or my LinkedIn pages, you'll see, you know, what I provide and what, what the company I, I run provides. Um, I think that, you know, that's a, a good introduction to who I am. I think additionally, I would just say I'm a father. And um, I bring that up because, you know, we have many roles in life. Father, husband, uncle, nephew, uh, friend, confidant, such. Uh, and like I said, I can't help but 
I can't help but apply the quality lens to what I do, you know, 80%, if not more of my day. And so with, um, with now being a father of two, it's interesting to, it's interesting to balance the cost of, you know, quality assurance and quality control on, on my, on my children. Um, because I find that, you know, having one or two simple rules in their life and just repetitively telling them that those rules, um, you just, you see a ripple effect in other ways they think about things. And that sort of habitual thinking is very similar to when you, when you make a, a cultural change in an organization. It's almost like an affirmation or almost like a mantra where you're trying to say something. So for instance, in my professional career, I came up with this probably about a decade ago, which is quality is as quality does. You know, you can't put lipstick on a pig type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I would say that's a, a pretty good quick summary of, of, okay. of who I am. So you're, you're really describing a very holistic view of quality. I know it personally impacts your life, both professionally and, um, and in all of your relationships. The words culture of quality, that's something we were going to talk about here today. What does that mean? And in the work that you've done and all the companies you work with, you've worked with over the years, how do you create that? How does one go about creating a culture of quality? So that's a good question. I mean, I've worked with uh, both enterprise um, implementations as well as startup. I'm, I'm more inclined to work with startups because of the um, the capability you have for for modifying culture quite quickly. Um, so I would say, if you wanted to look at how a culture of quality would come about, I think the the probably the most acute or or even exaggerated example of this is that when you look at most methodologies, most methodologies end on optimization or and on improvement. Do this at this initial level, get better at it, start tracking it. Okay, now make optimizations. And I, I definitely see why that's the case. However, if you think about it, the very act of making an investment in quality is the optimization it is the improvement so this the these these highly defined methodology where improvements come at the end or optimization comes at the end discredits the fact that you're actually starting with that and if that's the case then let's applaud what's already going on in the organization as opposed to saying we're going to start bringing in we're going to start introducing a culture of quality. Or we're going to start introducing a, a testing team or a QA team or a process management team. Those things were already going on to begin with. And you want to, you want to optimize those and not take away from the work that people have been doing before, just because they may not have, um, you know, a, a background or a, um, or a title that has the word quality or assurance or, anything like that. So many organizations I go into, um, when you think of culture, I think a lot of times of like a Petri dish or yogurt bacteria, um, there's already quality going on at the organization. So now let's 
let's start optimizing it. And again, I would say that the optimizations are small, durable shifts. Um, embedding QA into Scrum teams, and whether that means that there's an actual QA person or a dev, uh, or you know the, the developers take it on as you know as far as like a definition of done or a, a acceptance criteria or such. But then there's also the working with the organization itself because if you you know traditionally look at testing and uh, everything makes it to the testers and the testers have failures on their tests. I mean the the testers are held responsible to some degree because they wrote the test, but what they're testing is a body of work that has been implemented by engineers or developers that has been defined by some sort of business analysis or product management that has been designed with a with a u- user experience or UI by by some designers that was prioritized by um, the, the the stakeholders that was defined by some sort of competitive analysis or market analysis. So by the time you know it gets to this traditional QA um, and we find failures or we find passes, either one, passes or failures, it's actually just a representation from that whole flow. Mm-hmm. Again, with the caveat that yes, within a QA team or a testing team, they should be defining tests if they're going to do repeatable, repeatable uh, you know, say for regression detection or for uh, performance or something, they're going to have their tests. So the, the, the test may have false positives and false negatives, just like any test might. But for the majority, we're looking at like 85, 90%, if not more of the time, a test failure or a test pass has nothing to do with the, the, the ordained QA group. In the same way that in a movie, um, you know, anytime you watch a movie, stay till the credits roll, and you're not going to find a QA team on a movie production. You'll find like maybe visual graphics or um, photography or uh, set design or casting. They may have different roles in their teams called final check or something, but it's it's that nature of everyone owns their own quality. More minute or one of the more specific examples is when you do embed a, a, a QA person on a, on a scrum team, you can still have your, your formal system test team or your QA team, but when you embed an actual QA person on a scrum team, they own the product features that are being developed in the same way that the developers do. The same way as the product manager does. So that, that ownership, I think, goes a long way at, um, at you know, happier people and then the culture uh, being more mindful and, and such. Mm-hmm. You and I have talked a lot in the past about change because part of what we do with consulting is we go into systems and assess them, evaluate them, and then lead to some sort of changed outcome that is desirable for the business. Revenue, quality, decreasing costs, etc. When you're, and I, I like what you're saying about going into a company and looking at what they're already doing and almost applauding the existing process as it is and then saying, how do we use what we have now to make it better? And then the other thing that I clued into what you just said was that it may not be an explicit role, like in the case of the movie industry, but it's there. It's baked into everything that you're doing. So when you go into a company, I don't even know any specific names of which clients have been good or bad at this, but when you go in and they say, hey, Chris, you know, we 
we need help with, with testing. And you know that they're looking at it from a very end of process view where it's, we've built everything and now we just need someone to make sure that, you know, the squares are blue and that the system processes transactions. How do you manage those expectations and that, that belief in their head that quality is just this like last gate as opposed to, well, let's look at all the inputs in the system and how we got to this place. How do you, how do you handle that? Sir, that's a good question. Um, you know, having done this for, you know, in my, my way and learning along the way, every day, every day you wake up and you learn something new. Um, you know, I think there are some common, let's just call them techniques that you can use, but those common techniques probably represent, in all honesty, probably about less than 15% of what you can do. So, like... <laughs> You, they're, they're highly um, strong, solid, sound techniques, but they only get you so far. Um, so I like to um, talk with the participants in the ecosystem, if you want to call it, that the play, like if you mm -hmm. think of it like a, a play. Um, I want to hear what they've done themselves and when I one of my techniques is when I'm listening to them I'm saying to myself okay is this something they've done from a prevention type of way after you know after getting burned or something but who cares mm -hmm. but anyway are they doing it from a prevention per perspective or are they doing it from a perspective of um, like an activity that they do to to evaluate or test or detect something because they've gotten burned in the past. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, if you're demoing at VCs, um, you know, do you, do you bring your own uh, Wi-Fi hotspot hot because you've been burned so many times? So the quality assurance perspective of the prevention is that you go and buy a hotspot that you take with you because you've been burned. So now you've made an assurance, act, you know, an assurance step. But even when you get to the VC or, or to the uh, you know, potential client or whatever, you're still going to get 15, 20 minutes before you actually give your presentation to go through and make sure your hotspot works. Or maybe you use their Wi-Fi and then you find out it's fine or you use their Wi-Fi, don't find it's fine, so you grab your hotspot out of it. That would be more of a quality control you know, testing mm -hmm. uh, area. So that's I, I like to do that a lot. The other thing is um, when you when you take into account some of the uh, leading people in the quality management movement um, and such, you get some really good gems of quotes from them. And, um, and so, you know, from a perspective of, of verification and validation, verification being I'm verifying that the functionality works as expected, as it's defined, the process has been followed, that type of thing. That's very, um, you know, traditional QA. There's also the validation of it. And you could be working with designers who haven't seen the product for four months because they did design, or you could be working with end users, we could do alpha beta testing and such. Um, but this is where, you know, in, in offering a product to a market, this is, you know, there's a need, there's an interest, and then there's the means to pay for it, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this validation area that has to do with 
much more end user um, experience. And so if you if you if you look at it from that perspective, you can you can make really good change um, and present with evidence. You know, if you if you can look at other areas and say, okay, um, there's some really great tools out there for for GitHub, for instance, that you get a, a token, you point it to some repos, and it will do some analysis for you. How long do per request take? Who puts the most comments in? Um, you know, how long has the pull request been out there? You can do the same thing with, with other tooling, you know, like uh, you could export something from like a pivotal tracker, throw it into a spreadsheet and see how, how often things, how, you know, the creation updated date, you could look into JIRA and you could do some of the status, you know, it, a status change from this status to this status between these dates. And, um, you know, if you're not speaking with evidence, you're just another person with an opinion. I can sleep well at night by putting a, a dashboard together. And if someone questions the homework, if you will, or the, the underlying data, then yeah, let's, let's look at that. Did I run a formula wrong or did I run a, a query wrong or did I not take into that account something? But otherwise, when you are able to do that same, that same summary, you know, three times in a row for three months and they can see trend lines, um, that goes very well. And like I say, I'm working with everyone. So if um, I don't, I've never thought that an engineer wakes up and says, I'm going to create a bunch of bugs today. Um, it just doesn't seem like all their comp sci and all their cost of college would go that way. So I want to go back to what you mentioned about evidence, because I think that is, especially in this time of COVID, when companies are all watching the bottom line and we're trying to say, as a CEO, as a founder, as a manager, were those dollars well spent? You know, do we see the payoff for this? Um, and you, you mentioned earlier that you work with startups and smaller companies as well as enterprises. So kind of diving into one of those examples, let's say with the startups. You, know, you and I have both been in software a long time, probably back in the days of Cosmo and Pets.com in the late 90s, right? When people were moving really fast and making software companies and quality was always okay, well, we're going to release it, so we should probably have someone click the button to make sure that it actually works. And I think today, we still see a lot of the startup mentality that is, what's the bare minimum we can do to get funded, to get to the first round? So without overinvesting, because budgets are tight, timelines are tight, but how would they look at where should we be integrating quality into our practices to help us get that first round of funding and to get a product? So let's, yeah, let's take into account that the human species is a tool-based species. We're social, we're emotional, but we're very tool-based. Some of my ancestors moved from Germany, they moved to Ohio, they were farmers in Germany, they moved to Ohio, and like, they got all the land they wanted, but it was a lot different land than, than the you know, 3,000 years of, of um, farming and agriculture where they had come from. So all of a sudden, they had to actually develop new tools to, to work the land, the soil in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And uh, those tools are, know, maybe they're sitting in someone's garage now. But my, my point being, we are a tooling type of group. So when you talk about, you know, getting some VC or how do I get the next funding or whatnot, imagine that the first hammer, first of all, didn't even have the word hammer. It wasn't even had a label hammer. It was 
we found something that will make two things attached to each other and I've got this rock to kind of like just, you know, put it in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the quality of that was whether or not whatever two items that you're putting together are going to actually last or not. In a windstorm under pressure or, you know, you, you're, you know, maybe you're Neanderthal or a caveman or something like that and you've got a son who's, you know, going through the rebellious adolescent stage and like, you know, kicks kicks your hut door and the whole thing falls down, you know, mm-hmm. that's not. So the, the quality of something is actually baked into it. The best way I can say it is you pay for quality no matter what. It's like having a secret sauce that's not really a secret sauce. Like I make you a good sandwich, you know, we're having lunch together and you're like, Chris, that's a delicious sandwich. What would you do differently to it? I say, it's got mayonnaise, I don't know. You know, there's nothing to it, but mm-hmm. remembering that you will pay for quality no matter what. This was, comes in the cost of quality. So what can you do is look at it from a perspective of what can you front load on something at a certain amount? So many startups I've worked with, um, they're bringing me on six, eight months, nine, 10 months into it. Some of the enterprises I've worked with, they're bringing me on after a couple million dollars of failures, you know? Um, and then I say, well, with those enterprises, I say, you know, they're, they're a little big. So the best thing to do is to deploy a QA person on every scrum team and, and get them used to it. And my goodness, it is amazing when that, when, when there's a cross of a threshold where, where all of a sudden that scrum team doesn't, there's no, there's roles, obviously someone's engineering and someone's testing, but when it comes to the, the daily scrum meeting or the standup meeting, everyone gets their, gives their updates. If they're swarming around something, if there's a parking lot issue, if there's any kind of three amigos when they're, when they're putting the definition of done or acceptance criteria together, um, you see, you see that there's this really great incorporation or embedding. So with CEOs and other companies that do this, the main thing is you're going to pay for quality no matter what. When you take the time to make an investment in, say, a, a testing person or a, a QA person or, or you know, a, a test engineer or something, now you're making an investment. And like any investment, you should have an ROI on that investment. You have a return, return on investment. So if the case is that you bring someone on and, it, you know, let's say they're you know, $5,000 a month, you have them on for three months, that's $15,000 that, that you've invested, you've, you've made an investment on it. Um, you can look back and say, okay, did they find severity one, severity two bugs, which are the high impact bugs mm-hmm. that did not make it to production? You can't necessarily put a cost to those bugs unless they're, unless if you, those bugs had been released, you already had a, um, a number that you knew you were making per hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a financial companies I've worked for. We knew that we were making, uh, approximately like $1 million for every, I think it was like every three hours or two hours or something like that. And we, you know, if a system went down, a database system or application tier system went down, we knew how much money we were losing. Mm -hmm. So you could most likely somewhat theorize or hypothetically extrapolate on that in the, in the idea that a a showstopper found and it makes it out to, production what you could potentially be losing Mm -hmm. in that you can do that um so if you identify something as a severity one or severity two impact um you could you could you could look at from a 
ROI perspective did this bring in? On the other hand, let's say you don't bring a QA person on, you want the developers to find, you know, engineers to follow a certain process. Well, okay, so if it takes them, you know, one hour just to code something and put it in, and you say no, no code, no, no feature code or no bug fix code can go in without a test. Unit test, integration test, uh, API test, component test, uh, uh, you know, automated UI test, I don't really care uh, to the, you know, for this topic of conversation. But the idea is that now the developer is having to estimate their work, not only on the implementation of code that is the feature of the bug fix, but also on the complementary test so that that bug won't happen again or that that feature can be tested by other developers in the future. So if they make a, a small change in the refactor, they can run the test to make sure they didn't mm -hmm. break something larger. You're making an investment in it. Um, if you live in the state of Washington or Oregon, um, you know, it's going to rain. Okay. So, so you don't, you know, it's going to rain, you know, you're going to pay for quality. So when you make the investment in either engineers or product management or QA or testers or operations, you're buying an umbrella. When you're living in Washington, Oregon, you know, you know, it's going to rain. You go out and buy an umbrella. Now, is an umbrella, you know, this compact one because you travel a lot. It's a big golfing one because you're going to be walking around with the, the neighborhood with your family. That's up to you for your investment. But that investment, um, there's there's both tangible and intangible. But generally speaking, there's a there's a re return on investment, and then there's also a, a total cost of ownership for that piece of software. Mm -hmm. And so if you say, okay, we have we have engineers who are doing development, we have a tester, we have a product manager. Well, there's a total cost to that that software's development and that, that software's maintenance. I, I hope, I, without going into specific examples of a startup with a venture capital mm -hmm. of this amount of money, because I, you know, after a certain time period with, uh, with clients um, of mine, I will tell them that, you know, the more, the more I invoice you, the less you're going to see my value, right? We hit a threshold. We've got a solid product. We haven't seen any severity one, severity two bugs. We're not doing a, a bunch of breaking changes. So, you know, I'm available when you, when you decide, but right now I think the best thing is to go out and do um, demos and that keeps your total cost of ownership down it. And there's, you can, you can assess your return on investment of having QA this, this far. And then you can, uh, if you decide to bring it in again, you can. So a lot of times what I do with companies is uh, uh, since I have my own business, uh, I do corp to corp. Um, and I do the corp to corp business model um, because it really just shows them like a service like electricity or trash or water, mm -hmm. whatever. You don't have to get into the 1099 minutiae or the W2 minutiae uh, to start with. You just do a corp to corp. This is how much I invo invoice you. Sometimes it's a retainer, sometimes it's hourly. But now you know what the investment is, so you can, you can segment the investment and do, a, do your own analysis as to whether or not you're happy with it or not. That makes sense. So that sounds very logical. And I think anyone listening to this show would say, okay, yeah, that's a great approach. It's pay for what you need. It's a service. At some point, your goal is to have the company know enough and have the right culture of quality to then take it and run with it and own it so that the cost of quality is a part of their total cost ownership of software. But let's talk just a little bit here about why this would be difficult. So we've talked before, you and I, in other discussions about change management and the other side of that, which is change resistance. So how do you overcome and what would you suggest to leaders and organizations who want to 
have a holistic view of culture, or, I'm sorry, of quality, what they might run into in terms of resistance from the organization, and just a couple of tips about how to deal with that. Um, yeah, that's a good, really good question. Again, um, I would, I would say that you, I don't think it was a Freudian slip of yours to say the word culture in place of quality. Um, you know, the shampoo you use, or the the clothing you buy, or the food you eat. Um, you don't call that out as quality. It's just your own lifestyle, your lifestyle choices or your income level or, or, or uh, what you habitually like, you know, people who grew up in more vegetarian and vegan homes, um, you know, inclined to that. They don't think of the quality of the food. They just, that's just what they've been eating their whole lives. And so I, quality and culture, um, although different words and, etymology of the words are, are different there is a lot of overlap behind that because let's just say that people are happy to work and then they produce really good products so you've got a culture of <laughs> you've got a culture and the output is quality so um you get that um that uh, that more Eastern philosophy symbol of a yin yang, um, you know, the, the, I mean, it's been characterized the white fish going after the, 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 the dark fish or the dark fish going after the white fish or whatever. It could be different colors, whatever. but yeah, I, it's the change management and resistance management is exactly that. It's, it's a, you know, how, how much can you put into the, organization to the culture of quality and the implementation of quality without drying them out like a you know like a, a non-stop flight from say Dallas to Indonesia oh my your skin will be so dry you're gonna be so tired you're like you're not you don't want to do that um, so again most typically is these small durable shifts you're you're looking at um, okay what can we start off first where are we at? Because there's an old joke where a person comes up to a farmer in, in the countryside and says, do you know how to get you know, to this city? And the farmer thinks for a moment and says, yeah, but I wouldn't leave from here. And you know, the, the idea of that is that you need to know where you're at to then hmm. know where you're going. Um, you know, with, you know, with modern mapping tools like with your phone or your computer you can just allow for your computer or your phone to know your location and then you just ask for directions and it tells you where to go um you know we used to have these maps at the very back the maps would be all pages and pages of maps but at the very end of the booklet there would be a matrix and it would show all the same cities along the rows and all the same cities along the columns and all you had to do is find the city you wanted to and the city that you were coming from, and you could find out what the mileage and what the average time, you know, 60, 65 miles per hour or whatever, was going to. So knowing where you're at and then knowing where you want to go to is a, um, is a mindset. Okay, it's not... Um, Gym memberships shoot up in January and February every year. Well, maybe not this year, but you know, years past. Yeah. And and 
if they figure out the quarantine with the plastic areas around you, then maybe they go back up. But my point being that they shoot up. And then by March or April, people are paying because they did a year contract, but they're not really going. Mm-hmm. So when you look at, when you look at implementing uh, the culture or the idea or the mindset, obviously you're starting with some kind of gap analysis. Where are you, where are you, where do you want to get to? You're listing out all the different tactics, hopefully, hopefully they're not having to be full blown, full blown, full blown strategies, but you're listing out the tactics between, you know, the items on one side of the gap and the other side of the gap. And your, your, those items should be small durable shifts that you can put in. Um, and with that, now you can basically habitualize the thinking so that, um, I mean, you can habitualize the thinking, but you can also put controls in place. So for instance, you could put a process control in that, you know, you don't know the subsystem or system that's being the most updated. So you could put a, a control in place that, you know, no ticket can be closed that doesn't list out what what system was updated so that way when you look at the end of a sprint or or change cycle whatever methodology you use um, you can see that this thing had the most changes uh you know technical user stories features or bug fixes Mm -hmm. and so now again you can speak with evidence so gap analysis small durable shifts speaking with evidence um will 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 get you to managing both the change that you want to do but also identifying the resistance that you might might have and the 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 resistance in my experience very 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 limited is on a malicious basis Mm -hmm. it's mostly to do with incentivization uh skepticism um uh, being tired already like just someone like they're just tired and they haven't taken a break um so a lot of the resistance management is not by some agent who is um who is you know trying to thwart efforts uh, be that a person or a team or whatever um i've worked with qa teams and when they hear another qa person is coming in um most of the time they're shy so i just go ahead and reach out to them and and talk with them and you know, we have like a jam session. Okay, what's going on and such. So you've got, you know, like I say, establish where you're at so you can do some gap, figure out what some of the durable shifts are, speak with evidence so that you can see when those changes are made. Um, and that's, that would, you know, from a resistance perspective or from a change perspective, my main thing is just people think about change management and they just go straight into change management. And, you know, that'd be, that'd be like saying that, you know, you wake up on January 1st and forevermore you're going to go to the gym, whatever your schedule is. As if there's no other influences or inputs in your life. Like, no, you obviously, you know, you're your worst saboteur, your worst enemy a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But also you have external ones. You know, you get a call from someone and they want to go out or, you know, this happens. So if you look at from a perspective of, of getting things done or making improvements in your own life, um, that goes very far as to how to counter the resistance of, of something is just identify like an if then else statement. If this happens, what will I do? You're prepared with some sort of recovery program, like a disaster or business continuity program. Like, 
um, we're gonna go for this, but we know that this is gonna, you know, hit us. Um, you know, I'm gonna go jogging in Africa and an elephant just, you know, crossed my path. Um, you know, what do you do when an elephant crosses your path? Okay, well, I stop and I run around the elephant or I do this or I, I wear shoes that I can, if they have to get wet because I have to go in this, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of an if then else statement. Uh, but okay. you, make a, you make an excellent point in this, this, this harmony of change management and resistance management. You're managing for the change, but you're also managing for the resistance of that change. Again, most of the time, not malicious. Um, Most of the time, just uh, people are skeptical. Oh, I've tried this before. Or, oh, yeah, oh, you're another QA person. Or, yeah, we had a tester for, and it's like, okay, well, let's let's go into the, let's go in. Anyone that's ever been managed by me or or worked with me, I should say, because I learned so much from people have ever, you know, quote, unquote, reported for me. I just am amazed at at minds. Um, but there's a concept in, I want to say Jap- Japanese, but it may be actually more Zen, which is called Shoshin, which is the beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not to say that you don't know what you don't know. 10,000 hours of expertise is, as people say, or, or experience, but you do look th- at things from a fresh perspective. And so you, you want to encourage or enable or empower people to be able to look at things from a fresh perspective, another set of eyes. Um, so if they say, you know, we want to implement, you know, something, there's a, there's a really good um, methodology for goal setting called um, OKRs, objective mm-hmm. key results. Um, organization wants to do it. They come to me and they say, hey, from a quality perspective, what do you want your OKR to be? And they're thinking I'm going to say, you know, some sort of KPI type of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I'll probably say is at an organization level, you probably want an OKR for OKRs. Like if this is your first time implementing OKRs, you probably should have an OKR that has an objective of implementing your OKRs and then has some key results as to how to measure whether or not you're getting objectives right. Very, uh, very meta. But, mm-hmm. but that way you can speak with evidence. We want to implement OKRs. And instead of getting into the, the, you know, the, the, the possible pitfalls of that, you know, too many OKRs, not knowing if it's a department or if it's a person, uh, way too many KRs, maybe some indentations of those KRs, whatever. Mm-hmm. You're simply saying, no, we're going to have three to four objectives. Each objective will have two to four key results. But one of those we are going to be reserving for the actual implementation of OKRs to measure and, and manage our OKRs until the point that it's so embedded that we can then remove it. That would be, the, that would be one way of... of you know there's going to be change management. The change management is we want to implement some sort of management mm-hmm. goal system. The resistance management, you need to recognize it's there no matter what. So what do you do about that? You have an if-then-else statement, and maybe the if-then-else statement would be that you, that, you, know, that you, you put an OKR for OKRs. So using that example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it was a test case, you, know, you would have someone review that test case. You know, so, so the change is that you're going to start doing testing on a regular basis. You're going to use these tests. But as you develop those tests, in the same way that you develop code or you develop a marketing strategy or whatever, have someone review that test as another set of eyes so that not only do you get their adoption or, or, or participation in it, but they also can help vet the, that change being we're going to put a te- new test case in. Why wouldn't this test case work? Oh, well, you missed this or you missed that or some, some sort of peer review. I feel like we could talk for hours more. We probably will going forward with future episodes about quality assurance and what that means for people and why they should care. 
and how we develop it. But I just want to say thank you again, Chris, and it's been a pleasure. And we look forward to talking again soon. Oh, the pleasure's been all mine. Thank you for starting this. I think it's a, just a wonderful, like, I just think it's a wonderful, like, way, especially in all these times of, of business, and such, to really just get to the heart of, of these, how you make change and how you make lasting change, smart lasting change. Thank you, Chris. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening today. Please hit subscribe. Visit me on HassanArcher.com or on LinkedIn. If you have led meaningful change in your company, please reach out. I look forward to maybe interviewing you in the future.